There's no place to escape to. This is the last time. On the left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. We were talking about Carl Pansram Pansram. Pansram. And this story, oh my God. Wowie, wowie, wow, wow, wow. That's a hot take, and I agree with it. I'm going to say, this man, I was sort of aware, because I knew about the quotes, and Mm. I've seen the pictures of his face, very mean looking, technically deviously handsome. Mm -hmm. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, kind of handsome, beautiful eyes, soft Mm. mouth. That kind of hair that goes back, looking a little bit like Kelsey Grammer. (laughs) A little bit. Oh my God. Carl Panzram is slowly but surely licking, scraping, and fucking his way to the top of the list of serial killers for me. Uh-huh. I think he is. What a story. And well, that's what he said in his head. Every time he was doing a murder, he said, one day a fat boy from Queens will respect <laughs> me. One day. Well, he technically had several fat boy from Queens. That's doing by chains. That. Well, that's the thing about listening to true crime writers uh, talk about Carl Panzram. They can barely contain their excitement. It's mm. like they're all just waiting to go like, this dude is so cool. This guy's fucking crazy. Guy, dude. Guys, I mean, honestly, have you seen the Expendables? This guy would be on the Expendables. He would be. Well, I suppose there is a part of him that everybody does want to harness for their own sake and their own power. I mean, yes, it's true. Out- he is a true outlaw. Right. Yeah. So Carl Panzram was an American nomadic hobo serial killer who robbed, raped, burned, and killed his way around the world in the first 20 or so years of the 1900s. And that is True. Around, Around the, the world. world. <laughs> and in the 1900s, the early 1900s, that was very difficult to do. Here's a quote uh, from Panzram himself that tells you everything you need to know. Now, remember, we have a collection of his letters. So we have a lot of information straight from the old dog's mouth himself. Mm-hmm. And so this is him writing about himself. And quite articulately as well. Mm-hmm. In my lifetime, I have murdered 21 human beings. I have committed... Thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and I, but not least, I have committed sodomy on more than 1,000 human beings. I used the nice word. That is nice. That is a nice I word. I get credit for using the nice word. Carl Panzeram does get credit for it. You don't. <laughs> for all of these things, I am not the least bit sorry. I have no conscience, so that does not worry me. I don't believe in man, God, or devil. I hate the whole damned human race, including myself. If you or anyone else will take the trouble and have the intelligence or patience to follow and examine every one of my crimes, you will find that I have consistently followed one idea through all of my life. I preyed upon the weak the harmless and the unsuspecting. This lesson I was taught by others. Might makes right. Uh, the Carl Panzram story is known to us because in the later years of his life, he befriended a prison guard named Henry Lesser. And after they became friends, Panzram told Lesser, You are one of the very few people I do not wish to harm unless you start wearing that male romper. <laughs> it is a fashion 
travesty. <laughs> it will not be around very long. Lesser encouraged Carl to write an autobiography detailing his various escapades throughout the years, and Carl obliged. Now, this is one of the very few serial killers where the main source we're using is the killer himself. Now, normally... This is very unreliable. Normally. Now, and a lot of this is going to sound absolutely insane, but a lot of it has been fully or mostly verified by researchers. And in fact, no major statement that Panzram wrote in his autobiography has been disproven. Hmm. He gives sources while he's writing. You know, he'll be writing about a certain crime, he said, and, and then he'd say, look, you can go to this location in this town, check out this newspaper, and you will find an article about this crime that I did. And you'll also notice there's a Culver's. And <laughs> butter does make a better burger, I can tell you that. That's the thing is that it's impossible to know how many dozens, if not hundreds, of Carl Panzrams existed in America that we will never know about, especially in this time period. Because it is important to yeah. know that Carl Panzram is very much a product of his time. Well, he's, um, I was talking about it with Natalie, and we both compared him. It's like, I would see Carl Panzram as an incredible villain, as a part, him, same thing as H.H. Uh, H. Holmes. Same level, also <laughs> created by this time period, which is, then it's, it's transitory. Yeah. There's literally, there was no highways. Mm -hmm. There was no way to get out. Essentially, the West was still kind of like the West, but it wasn't. There was like a weird-ass transitional period. Well, yeah, this, yeah, this was a super weird transitional period. Mm -hmm. The like late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, the West was pretty much settled by this point. Mm -hmm. There were still a couple of Indian wars going on, uh, but it was still extremely violent. And this was at the tail end of uh, the settling of the West and the yeah. tail end of the Civil War. The Civil War was not that long ago. The most violent period in American history had just happened. So by this point, Americans were pretty much used to violence. It's like, well, we just live in an extremely violent country. And, this is the yeah. way things are. Uh, and of course, when they had that violence, they had to meet it with equally brutal punishment in the American penal system, which Carl Panzram is without a doubt a product of. Carl Panzram is different. It reminds me again of Manson, yeah. where he mm. is a completely, he was taught punishment by us. The U.S. government and the penal system punished Panzram so hard that he just shot it back out the back door and he just became harder and meaner. But before we get to Panzram's many, many years spent in prison, let's start with his birth in 1891. <laughs> Ken Burns music. <laughs> Panzram was the youngest of five kids born to German immigrant dirt farmers in Minnesota. He said, I've been a human animal ever since I was born. He had four brothers and two sisters, I believe. Mm. The dad was kind of this weird, restless spirit, kind of a faceless, one of those farmer guys, right? It was just, like, dead on the inside in Alcoholic, the Alcoholic, extremely uh, temperamental. Well, that's the thing. Is his father came to America thinking that, oh, we're going to get a homestead. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to get, like, a full plot of land. But by the time, you know, the late 1800s came around, a lot of America was already settled. A lot of the West, mm -hmm. all of the good shit had been taken years ago. Oh, Never, yeah. ever believe the pamphlet. Flits. Never. No, never. That's why we had the Dust Bowl, for fuck's sake. Ooh, I love the Dust Bowl. So he would beat his family regularly, but mostly he was restless and just kind of like trying to figure out what to do. So he just kind of disappeared. Mm -hmm. And when he disappeared, the mom kind of went a little crazy and also needed a lot of help running the farm. And so no. he, uh, as a kid, was forced to, he'd go to school for eight hours, which was not friendly. Like That's it's not the that same, bad. Just normal corporal thing. And yeah. then the mom would immediately put him on the farm where he was picking up rocks and doing stuff all night long until he would get like two or three hours of sleep, go back to school and did this every day until 
Just his childhood. That was what That's the story was. of many American farm kids. Yeah, it's yeah, true. Yeah. That's not it really so bad. Is. And uh, the thing is, is that most of the other Pans Rams, or actually all the rest of the Pans Rams, turned out just fine. Hmm. But what happened to Carl? Brain injury. Uh, That'll yeah. do it. Yes, of course. When Carl was a kid, he had a mastoid removed from his left ear. Uh, but as this was the 1890s and the family was dirt poor, the surgery was done at home. Technically, they were dirt rich. Yes, that's what I was about <laughs> to say. Unfortunately, you can't sell dirt. So, uh. And, of course, that didn't work, and the infection just got even worse, yeah. and Carl was finally taken to a hospital where a second operation was done and the mastoid was removed successfully. But it is extremely possible that the infection and or the home surgery caused some sort of brain damage. Yeah. Like, whatever it is in our brains that governs <laughs> anger and, and hate and rage, it just got knocked loose in Carl, and he just could never get it under control again. Well, soon after the operation, his dad left when Carl was seven, and then after that, Carl was getting into trouble constantly. He got arrested for the first time at the age of eight for public intoxication. And when Carl was 11, he broke into a neighbor's home and stole apples, cake, and a pistol. Because he sat, he was sitting at 11 years old, he's sitting there drunk, he is contemplating life because at this point he's completely pulled out of school. He's now just working on the farm. And he's like, you know, a lot of other kids could do whatever they want. And they just, I bet I could just take what they have. Like, he literally yeah. just learned, like, oh, I just go over there and I take their shit. Sure. Uh, of course, he was caught after he stole the uh, apples, the cake, and the pistol. He was beaten, uh, as he had been for most of his life up to that point, and he was sent to the Minnesota State Training School in Red Wing, Minnesota, and this is where Pansram said he began to learn about man's inhumanity to man. Yeah. The Minnesota State Training School was first and foremost a Christian facility. Pansram said their method of training was to beat the goodness into him and the badness out. He wrote, The more they beat me and whipped me, the more I hated them and their damn religion. Uh, when Panzerham got to the school, he said a man named John Moore sat him down, explained the rules, and examined his penis and rectum thoroughly. You got to. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He then asked Carl if he had ever committed sodomy or had ever had sodomy committed on him. Uh, and when Carl said, when Carl told the guy he didn't know what sodomy was, Carl said the officer explained it to him in great detail. Quote, unquote, great re detail. Yes, it sounds quite disturbing. So this is the one of the first incidences of his, um, I guess he was being preyed on uh, as, as a youth as well. Well, the reform school employees, they were said to be worse than prison. Guards. They were mm. underpaid. They were undertrained. They didn't know what they were doing. They just shoved them in there with all of these children, and they're like, figure it out. Yeah, oh. fix them. Fix them. That's not going to yeah. help. You know, when Panzram or any of the other boys were punished, they were taken to what was known locally as the paint shop, so named mm. because that's where the administration would figuratively paint the boys' bodies black and blue. Uh, that wasn't where Bob Ross taught them how to paint mountains. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> the boys would be stripped naked and bent over a large wooden block, and a towel soaked in salt water would be spread on their backs <sighs> from their shoulders to their knees. They would then be whipped with a leather strap that had little holes punched through it. Those little holes, when they were hit, it would make blisters. And those blisters, the more they hit them, mm. they would burst. And What's the whipping continued. And when the blisters burst, 
that's when the saltwater soap mm. towels start to work on the open wounds. And then you still got a sugar-coated hat. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And by the end of all that, Panzram said, Naturally, I now love Jesus very much. Yes, I love him so damn much that I would like to crucify him all over again. Hmm. Now, possibly the worst idea the guards came up with to punish Panzram was to make him wash dishes and wait tables in the officer's dining room, giving Carl access to the officer's food. Ooh. He would urinate into any liquid that was going to the dinner table, and he'd jerk off on the ice cream and any dessert that came in front of him. Awesome. And he said they enjoyed it, too, because they told him so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, after he got tired of jerking off on the ice cream and pissing in the soup, he tried to kill the officers with rat poison. But thankfully, for the guard's sake, this was the only time Carl got caught putting something in the food. He was beaten and promptly taken out of weight service. Mm. So the more that Panzram got into trouble, the more the guards beat him. And the more they beat him, the angrier and tougher he got. Then he came upon a way of dealing with shit that he would carry with him for the rest of his life. If I couldn't injure those who injured me, then I would injure someone else. They call me a bit of a grouch. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a nice word for what he became. Uh, 1905, Panzram's brother drowned in a logging accident on Red Lake River. Naturally, Panzram's mother asked if Panzram could be sent home to help out on the farm. They were down a man. But the superintendent of the reform school denied the request, saying that Carl hadn't made enough progress yet. And as retaliation, like Carl would do time and again, he set fire to the building where the infamous paint shop was located. God, he was such a fucking holy terror. He just burnt down every single oh, thing. Oh, it must have been great to see that uh, horrible building, uh, building burned down. Well, with him, it was always about revenge. Yeah. Uh, when you read his letters, every time he like burns something down, it's always in retaliation to something else. He's a man of weird principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very strange principle. Uh, everything, it's, he is, if I were to use a word to describe Panzram, it is deliberate. Mm. Like, everything that he does has a reason. So after burning down a fucking building at the mm. age of 12, Panzram got a tip from some of the smarter boys that if he ever wanted to get out of the reform school, he needed to, at the very least, give the appearance of love in Jesus. Mm. And it worked. But Panzram naturally left a little bitter. You know, he's a little bitter. A little bitter it's, about the whole experience with the, the Christian reform school. Yeah, that not, makes a little bit of sense. I've been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite. And I've learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing. I had learned that a boy's penis could be used for something besides to urinate with. And that a rectum could be used for other purpose than crepitating. Oh, yes. I learned a hell of a lot from my expert instructors furnished to me free of charge by society in general and the state of Minnesota in particular. From the treatment I received while there and the lessons I learned from it, I had fully decided when I left there just how I would live my life. And so in January, Carl was released to the care of his mother and was sent back home. But when he got there, they immediately put him to work on the farm. So, And he didn't want to do that shit. And Carl decided it was time to hit the road. At 13 years old? Yeah, but as cars weren't going to be commonplace for another couple decades, hitting the road meant riding the rails. Mm. And riding the rails 
meant hobos, bindle stiffs, mush fakers, and roustabouts. They learned there's ways to hide on a train, because normally you have also railmen and rail mm-hmm. breakers, guys that are walking around like looking for people that yeah, are railroad hiding. Railroad bulls. Railroad bulls. Oh, Ugh. yeah. No, yeah. Listen to any Woody Guthrie song, you're going to hear a lot about railroad bulls. Um, but I remember this one definition. So, so, so at the time, there were three levels of homeless workers, right? There were bums that never work, tramps that only work where they have to, and hobos mm. that uh, travel to work. They travel and work. Carl Panzram is not our first. This is the very first version of a hobo serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There were hobos, bindlesteps, mush fakers. They were also the curious American phenomenon of the egg. Now, the egg does yeah. sound like a weird diet egg, like from the <laughs> 80s. Ooh, I love the egg. Now, a egg was a kind of traveling burglar who was usually accompanied by his quote-unquote boy. And not hmm. boys and like, oh, he's my boy. That's my boy. That's my, that's boy. my boy. Yeah, that's my boy. No, it's boy. It's a young boy who got roped into riding the rails with a criminal. I see. Uh, so, yeah, it was a kind of weird, like, pedophilic criminal tag team that would God. ride the rails. And they and that's the thing. There were so many of these guys. They had their own subculture in the hobo world this- with their own, like, rules, value systems, and traditions. Wow. He wrote, one experience I had during that time I never forgot. And it had a direct bearing on a lot of my actions later in life. And mm. that experience was being gang raped by mm. four hobos in a boxcar in the middle of the night. I mean, Ugh. he was a young kid yeah. that obviously was a tiny bit hardened. He was kicked out on the street. He's out. He's riding the rails. He's alone. He sees a bunch of people. And the, the way it was is that he, he approached four guys. They all seemed really nice. And they were sweet to him. And they were, like, talking about him. And finally, they were like... Um, we're going to do this thing to you that we all like to do to each other. And he's just like, I don't really know about that. And then it it became a very seminal experience for him. Now, not too long after that, Carl ran into a group of men in a livery stable. They were all getting drunk. And they said, hey, Carl, we got some beer. Try the beer, but the whiskey's better. Mm. And so they just kept giving him more and more to drink. And they got Carl so wasted, he passed out. And he was, again, gang raped. And this happened couple months sure. between each other. Uh, and about this, Carl wrote, I did not want to learn these lessons, but I found out that it isn't what one wants in this world that one gets. Force and might make right. Perhaps things shouldn't be that way, but that's the way they are. I learned to look with suspicion and hatred on everybody. The years went on, mm. and that idea persisted in my mind above all others. I figured that if I was strong enough and clever enough to impose my will on others, I was right. I still believe that to this day. Another lesson I learned at that time was that there were a lot of very nice things in the world. Among them were whiskey and sodomy, but it depended on who and how they were used. So Carl spent a few more months hopping between boxcars, robbing the whole way until he was arrested for burglary in Butte, Montana, and sent to another reform school. There he attempted to murder a guard for giving him a hard time by beating his head in with a piece of iron. Didn't? Yeah, he wasn't successful, but for his troubles, the school sent Carl to a hospital and clipped his foreskin to prevent him from masturbating. Now, did they think the power was in the foreskin? (laughs) I'm just thinking, is it like a Samson situation, (laughs) the the biblical story, where they're just like, we know where he gets all of his strength. (laughs) Clip it! You think if you make a man more European-like, he's going to become less horny? (laughs) I rather was like, why would they go about that procedure? But anyway. Yeah, and about the whole clipping situation, Carl said, Oh, the hell? 
hell they figured that would stop me is more than I could see. I can't yet. It's like cutting Beethoven's fingers off. He would have learned to play with his feet. (laughs) Possibly true. So when Carl was at that reform school, he made friends with a kid named Jimmy. So Carl and Jimmy escaped together, which was the first of Carl's many successful and unsuccessful jailbreaks. Now, this is probably the only true happy period of his life. Yeah. Mm. This, like, eight-month stretch with, stretch with him and Jimmy going around doing their favorite thing in the world, which was rob churches and burn them down. <laughs> Yep. (laughs) Eventually, the two split in Fargo with Jimmy going to jail for burglary and Carl heading back home for a couple days before going out west again. And there, for some reason, he decided to join the army. Because at this time, uh, the Indian Wars were just winding down. Yeah. Uh, The Indian Wars, like the major Indian Wars had only ended maybe like 10, 15 years earlier, but there were still a lot of skirmishes happening uh, across the American West Mm -hmm. with like little pockets of resistance with uh, certain Indian tribes. Carl, he lasted like a month. Uh, And then after a month, he was caught trying to smuggle out uh, two army overcoats, a suit, and a shitload of gold collar buttons. Uh, Yeah, he was planning to just go to town, fence them real fast, and then come on back. He was caught, court-martialed, and sentenced to three years at Fort Leavenworth, the worst military prison in all of America. And this sentence was passed down by the then Secretary of War and future President William Howard Taft. And amazingly, Panzram would actually take revenge on Taft 13 years later. So Leavenworth was a military prison where convicts were assigned grades from first to third. First would get special privileges, and third would get hard time. Panzram very quickly found himself a third grader. Yeah. Third graders were put under a total silent system, and if any of them broke a rule, the entire company was forced to stand at attention all night long. There were beatings, of course, but they would also use straitjackets on men, lacing them up so tight the men would pass out. Hmm. And they would just call it giving them the jacket. The worst punishment at Leavenworth was getting fitted with a stereotypical ball and chain, which Hmm. prisoners referred to as, quote, Earning the baby. Um, what does it mean, earn the baby? The baby, because the, the ball weighed 50 pounds, and it was worn day and night. Even when you slept, you still had to wear the ball and chain. Like, that whole stereotypical, like, cartoonish ball and chain shit. Like, it's all real. It's oh, all yeah. real. Oh, it it's still happens all today. real. And he would wear a big striped suit, and he'd have to carry it in his hands when they would do the gigantic, like, the forced marches they were doing. Well, yeah. they had to, he, he worked in the rock quarry, and the rock quarry was four miles away from the prison. So he essentially took this gigantic right. iron ball, this 50-pound ball, and walked four miles both ways, back and forth, did eight and a half, nine hours of hard labor. One of so, the craziest versions of CrossFit to ever yeah, exist. I was going to say, so the prison, uh, the, the man who ran the prison was like, maybe we should just get the prisoners to be, like, stronger than, like, Brutus. Yeah. <laughs> and then in no way will they overthrow us. Yeah, he did this for six, six months of that, every single day. Uh, and this is what he wrote about that shit, what that did to him. God, good Lord, was he fucking strong. At this time of my life, I was about 20 years old. Six foot tall and weighed about 190 pounds of concentrated, hell-fired, man-inspired meanness. I was as strong as two or three average men and half a (laughs) Spider-Man. But all of that treatment did one good thing for me. Mm. The 
the worse the food was and the harder they worked me, the stronger I got. I quit my old habit of masturbating because I couldn't do that and the hard work and punishment at the same time. He's masturbated so much yeah. that the work <laughs> kept him from masturbating. Right. <laughs> this is what Carl later wrote about his attitude upon being released from Leavenworth in 1910. I had fun. I feel flirty and I feel ready. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> this is, how, this is this what he is, really this said. This is really what he said. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for some reason it didn't help his attitude. Mm. No. Shocking. I was the spirit of meanness personified. I had not at this time got so that I hated myself. I only hated everybody else. <laughs> Carl was released from Leavenworth in 1910 and headed to Denver, Colorado. There he had another experience which proved to be fairly formational, although it could just be an excuse he ended up using so he wouldn't have to say he was out and out gay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He had a lot of excuses about not <laughs> wanting to be with women. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, about a week after Carl arrived in Denver, he came down with what he called a first class case of gonorrhea. I do like that he's like, it's first class. First <laughs> it, class. I, I, it's not an economy class case of gonorrhea. This is first class. I'll have my martini when I fly, please. You know it's first class because they serve you a dish of hot nuts. <laughs> this is so disgusting. Well, this is what he actually said about that experience. I began to suspect that ladies were very good things to leave alone. I have followed that policy pretty closely ever since. It, he fought it so hard, the lady doth protest too much because uh-huh. he met a man in a Denver holding facility, which is different now. It's not 420 Denver. Now it used to right. be just the mountain town. Before fucking old horse teeth John Elway carved his uh-huh. way through that town. That's right. It used to be a rough place, and so he went into a jail for, for a couple months for stealing a bike. He started talking to this safe cracker. Now what he said was much older than him. He was about 20 years old because he just got out of Leavenworth. Meanwhile, he is 190 pounds of Six foot two, six foot, a pile of muscle. Yeah. He's a ripped, hard, angry faced little man. Right. And he met the safe cracker. Then he said that he was super curious about learning how to blow safes because he wanted to up as much money as he could blow safes. Wait, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I am confused now with the, with the, this with the is terminology. It's terminology. Okay. And so he goes, and he gets released. He was only for a couple months, but the, the, the man, the other dude, the safe cracker, had a five year term. So he gets out. He robs a hardware store. He takes a bunch of files. Carl does. Carl does. He takes a bunch of files, straps them to his legs underneath his pants, which is a lot of effort, yeah. in order to break back into the jail to release his quote-unquote friend. That's kind of nice. If Only if you're fucking. Well, I don't <laughs> well, know, and that's that okay you. if they I found would, love in jail. I, I mean, had pump- the story not gone a horrible route that we'll get into, that's kind of sweet. So he broke into jail and then got caught. Because he's a fucking moron. Because obviously not the most inconspicuous human being on the face of the planet. They immediately put him back in jail. And so this is what he wrote in response. The thanks I got from old Cal was that he thought I was in love with him. And he tried to mount me. But I wasn't broke to ride. And he was. So I rode him. At that time, he was about 50 years old. And I was 20 or 21. But I was strong. And he was weak. All right. Hot stuff. So after Denver, Carl continued his life of crime, mostly robbing churches, until he arrived at the Kansas State Fair and joined Colonel Dickey's Circle D Wild West show. It is just as you can imagine what they do after hours. (laughs) He didn't last long there and was fired for constantly fighting everything and everyone, including the horses. It it is a scene out of Blazing Saddle. It is real. He punched a horse. Right. Part of the reason why he 
was fired. This guy <laughs> is a, a little stinker. Yeah. Well, Carl saw the Circle D again at the Missouri State Fair a few weeks after getting fired and in, in retaliation burned down both their horse and cook tent before immediately leaving for St. Louis. Uh, there, Carl worked as a strike breaker for the Illinois Central Railroad. Now, this is how much of a badass Carl was that he'd even fight for the man. He, wa- <laughs> right. he just wanted a job fighting, and there were so many jobs where you could legally fight. In 1910, it's it's amazing. There's so many goon squads. Well, a lot of times these uh, strikes would happen, and the companies would send in strike breakers, otherwise known they as just beat the living hell scabs, out of black, uh. leb- black legs, or knob sticks. God, and he loved all those names for himself. <laughs> yeah, Those well, are all different names he called his penis. Yeah, could be. <laughs> Carl then made his way down to Jacksonville, Texas, and on the way picked up two pistols, a little robbery money from a church or two, and, in his words, a curly-haired, blue-eyed, rosy-cheeked fat boy. Now, <laughs> he was a yeg, and so he had a sure. boy, Captain. But when Carl and the fat boy were arrested in Texas, the cops took Panzram's guns but left him the fat boy. How do they take the fat boy, leave the gun? No. There's no constitutional right to the fat boy. You cannot get between a yeg and his boy. You absolutely can. No, it's like get between a mama chimp and a baby chimp. I don't. Can well, you we imagine can... trying to take the boy Maybe they just from Carl lift Panzram's the boy. hands? Man, you're heavier than you look. Are you, ma- are you made of steel? <laughs> and the two were sent to the road gang where the boy was taken away there mm. only to be given over the bo- to the boss man so he could become his fat boy. I don't understand what's going on. Fat what boys, happened to the fat boy? From what I can tell you from being an altar boy, fat boys are currency. <laughs> I guess so. And when the boss man got tired of the fat boy, fat boy got sent back to Panzram in the prisoner's tent. Oh, By this point, he's, all, he's got all the boss man's oils all over him and he can go back to the nest. Disgusting <laughs> stuff happening. Now, in hobo terms, the boy was what you called a punk. So in Carl's words. A punk is a poofter, and a poofter is a pratter, and a pratter is similar to a fruiter. The only difference between the two is that one likes to sit on it, and the other likes to eat it. It's like if Dr. Seuss was horrible. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway, back in the prison camp with his fat boy, Panzram's 40 days were up, and he was ready to head out into the world alone. But the boss refused to let him go. Carl tried to escape, as was his wont, but he was caught and earned some time at the snorting pole. Ooh, what the heck? Now, I've been, I have had some fun nights. Yes. <laughs> um, it definitely sounds know, like a Paris Hilton activity. Yes, it's, it's the snorting pole. What do you guys do there? A bunch of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> now, the snorting pole was a fairly common form of punishment in the southern penal system in the early 20th century. How it worked was a rope was run through an eye hook affixed to the top of a 12-foot pole. And the rope would be attached to a pair of handcuffs snapped around the wrist of the prisoner. And the prisoner prisoner then be pulled upward by the wrist oh. above his head until his toes were barely touching the ground. He would then be stripped naked and whipped with what was called a red heifer, oh, which wow. was an eight-foot-long snake whip. Particularly, they used black snake whips, which meant that they had a load of lead at the bottom that could be used as a blackjack in a pinch. Yeah, whip me till I'm gay! <laughs> You're gonna be, like, excited We to don't be have gay. to whip you at all, then. <laughs> now, the snorting pole was so called because when men were whipped, they would, in Panzram's words, jerk, yell, jump, and snort. Oof. And about the experience, Carl said, 
When a man is let down after being whipped, he has blood on his back and murder in his heart. Carl saying that he had murder in his heart. He would not act on that just yet. After being released, Carl set back out on simple mayhem. He would rob chicken coops and burn them down or set fire to prairie grass or the woods or anything that would burn. Because for a while, that was how Panzerum, that's how he got out his frustration. Uh, That's how he got out his anger. He'd just burn shit down until finally one day that wasn't enough anymore. Uh, Carl would also take pot shots at the windows of farmhouses from the freight trains he was riding just to occupy time. And who knows if he actually hit anybody while he was taking those pot shots. And when he ran a fell a foul of a railroad official, Carl would pull out the Bible he kept with him, along with an accounts book forged with evidence of him being a good, hard-working Christian, down on his luck, and usually that was good enough to get him out of trouble. Hmm. He keeps doing that for the rest of his life. I even think that the game with Henry Lesser is a long con that he was trying to get on the other side of Henry Lesser in order to maybe help him get out of jail. But Pantram's lies and schemes with all of these railroad officials didn't always work out quite so simply as him just telling a lie and having the guard tell him to move on. Mm. One night, Carl was riding in a coal car with two other hobos. They were found by a railroad brakeman, brakeman being the guy who would apply the brakes to individual cars on the trains when need be, meaning Mm. this guy would walk from train to train to train. Usually the brakeman was the guy that discovered hobos riding the rail. This this seems like a very dangerous job. Extremely dangerous job. And when the brakeman started hassling the three hobos, asking them who they were, what they were doing, Carl pulled a gun, pointed it at the brakeman and said, I'm the fellow that goes around the world doing people good. The brakeman understandably started backtracking, saying he never threw hobos off trains, and then he offered to buy the trio dinner along with giving Carl everything he had on him. And Carl responded by overpowering the brakeman Mm. and raping him on the floor Mm. of the coal car. And when he was done, Carl then turned the gun toward the other two bums and made them rape the brakeman just as he had. It's very, uh, it's very intense. He's extremely intense, and you yeah. can tell in his writings, anytime he talks about sodomy or writes about it, mm-hmm. you can hear the twinkle in his eye. He's trying to freak the squares a little bit. A little bit, The yeah. idea is to bring it up all the time so he knows how unsettling that is to everyone, to use it as a weapon. Ba- basically, yeah. he's weirdly using his sexuality as a weapon. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of like Eileen Warnos in that weird yeah. way, yeah. where it, be- it becomes weaponized and it becomes this thing, because you've, what is, what especially a 1910s man what is he most afraid of getting poopy food I, in, I in a fucking <laughs> a box car some things never change you know those are, there are some things that last I would put eternal. that in my top five fears just, just feel that way yes absolutely in San Francisco Panzram was picked up for trying to fence a stolen watch in a bar called the Louvre after getting caught for stealing the watch Carl was told if he pleaded guilty to stealing the watch he'd get a short sentence But instead of getting a short sentence, he was given seven years in the Oregon State Penitentiary, Hmm. known to be, at the time, one of the worst prisons in America, which was saying a lot. Yes, and and the Oregon State Penitentiary, because of this, essentially, he he now viewed himself as he trusted somebody and they uh, they reneged on their word. The prosecutor. So the prosecutor yeah. reneged on his word, and this is going to be sort of like his Professor Xavier school for, uh, like, special children right. of criminality mm-hmm. once he gets to Oregon State Penitentiary. This is going to kick it up a notch. So the administrator of Oregon State was a man by the name of Minto who ran the prison 
as what could be considered a model of the for-profit prisons that operate in America to this day. Minto cut the pay of working inmates from a dollar a day down to a quarter to save money, and then he funneled cash that once went to the families of prisoners into what he called an institution betterment fund, which was used to buy machinery that earned the state even more profits, of which Mm. Minto more than likely took a cut and shit like this is still happening oh, today and in fact it's yep. i mean it now it's going up to the highest levels of power and in oregon state uh mento his staff was just as heartless as he was his main guy was jim vinegar cooper Ugh. known in the prison as the man of blogs Oof. this guy is crazy vinegar cooper yeah like he would wear gloves and he loved roses yeah and religious hymns like he would just listen to religious hymns as he whipped you and laughed yeah he'd sing them to himself stuff. yeah and wow. he would break prisoners by lashing them with a cat of nine tail so it's a guy named vinegar Lashing you with a cat of nine tails in a room full of roses while he's saying, Oh, lovely, thou art my God. Sounds like a Madonna video. <laughs> it might be a Madonna video. But the cat of nine tails, that wasn't even close to the worst torture used at Oregon State. That honor fell to the hummingbird. The hummingbird was a steel bathtub filled with four to five inches of ice cold water. Mm. The prisoner would be chained hand and foot and lied inside. The torturer would take a sponge, much like the one used in the electric chair, to direct the current and connect that sponge to an electric battery using wires. Two or three minutes and the victim is ready for the grave or the madhouse. Yet there is not a single mark or bruise on his whole body. Oregon State, like most overly punitive prisons, was already a powder keg waiting to go off by the time Panzram showed up. And Panzram's constant escape attempts did nothing to ease the tensions either. Hmm. This man was a one-man a one riot. Yeah. So one of the first riots he did is that he broke, basically he waited for a break in the shift, and the officer left. He somehow had held the door so that he could pop out of it. I forget exactly how he got out of the prison, out of his cell, but he was locked alone on the bridge with everybody, the officers on the outside. He stuffed all of the locks of everybody else's cell, including the door leading into the hallway with rags so people couldn't get through, and then he burned everything in the hallway until they had to put him back in isolation. So he was just... He's wow. a fucking maniac. Yeah. And all this stuff, that the, uh, the uh, his prison records, I mean, they actually looked those up, and he did all of this shit. Wow. This isn't just him be- trying to sound like a badass and saying that he did all this shit that he actually didn't do. All of this stuff is on record. Hmm. Well, Panzan tried to escape maybe half a dozen times, and every single time Panzram tried to escape, there would be a half dozen inmates that would try to escape right behind him in the exact same way. And even though the attempts weren't successful, Panzram wrote, If I couldn't escape, I would help everybody else that I could. Yeah, and the person who Panzram eventually got out was a 21-year-old kid named Otto Hooker. And one night, Hooker managed to get outside the walls, and Warden Mento decided to join the hunt with his shotgun. But Hooker had managed in the interim to get a hold of a gun himself, and before the manhunt was over, Warden Mento was dead by Otto Hooker's hand. Mento was replaced by his brother, John, who cracked down on the prison even harder. But that only made Panzram spread more 
mayhem. But when Panzram got back to his cell, he continued to sow discord. He'd bang on his bucket all night long. He'd scream constantly. And he would scream and make so much noise. He was down in the basement. He was down in the hall. But still, other prisoners would hear him, and they would respond by screaming and banging their buckets as well. And it would spread throughout the entire prison. John Minto would sit up all night because it would work its way through the vents. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he would sit in the jail, wait, like eyes open, staring at the ceiling and just hearing... All night long. Drive them nuts, huh? Yeah. And eventually this chaos led to the escape of two more prisoners named Cocky O'Brien and Stepanoff Smith. Oh, all right. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And since the administration couldn't punish Cocky O'Brien and Stepanoff Smith, they punished the chief troublemaker instead, Carl. They took him down to the basement, stripped him naked, chained him to a door, and unleashed the fire hose. The fire hose. It it sounds fun if it's like, that means they're 50 50 cent fire bombs. Uh, And another example of Carl taking out his anger on anyone he could in place of the people he really wanted to hurt, Carl wrote, This is more than 10 years ago, but still. Every time I catch an Oregonian and get him in a corner, I give him hell. Many a man has paid for what those men done to me that Sunday morning. I'm coming for Fred Armisen. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Now news of Carl's hosing reached all the way to the state house and the second Warden Minto was removed for cruelty. This was a statewide scandal. It was a huge deal. Now that warden... Mento, when he was fired, he was replaced with a reformer named Charles A. Murphy. Now, this is very interesting. This is super interesting stuff. Murphy began his reign at Oregon State by abolishing the hole, the bullpen, and all the torture, and he made potato peeling the worst punishment an inmate could receive, which earned him the nickname Spud Murphy. Yeah. Very fun. I love Spud Murphy. Yeah. Murphy also upped the quality of the food, fixed the phone lines, and made more jobs available to prisoners. And after these reforms were put into place, tensions eased and disciplinary reports plummeted. But even though all these reforms were put into place, Panzram didn't particularly care and kept trying to escape. He was caught again with a saw in his cell, but Murphy responded, instead of sending him to the hole or the bullpen, by increasing his rations and giving him magazines to read. Well, I ain't taking nothing unless it's golf digest. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> when Panzram was caught yet again, Murphy called him into his office. Panzram immediately identified himself as the worst guy in the prison. He was a lost cause. Murphy couldn't possibly reach him. Mm. So Murphy, in a gigantic gamble, told Panzram that the next day, the gates of the prison would be open to Carl, who could go wherever he wanted, just so long as he gave his word that he would be back. And this is what Carl said happened. I fully intended to escape at the first chance, but something went wrong somehow. Old boy Spud was as good as his word. He opened the gates and I was free to go any damn place I wanted. I just stood there dumbfounded. And so surprised at what I couldn't understand that I didn't try to escape at all. That evening, I walked up to the gate of the prison and demanded to be let back in. Now, after that, Carl started to change. Carl was put to work as a trustee outside the walls. And he was allowed to stay out in the evenings after dark, but... It wasn't to last. Uh, Carl was still facing four more years 
of his sentence. And one night, after a few drinks, Carl started to think that there was no real reason to go back to the prison when he could be having this good of a time all the time. He wrote, The night was warm and the moon was shining bright. A freight train was whistling down in the yards, calling to me. I figured. Anyway, I answered. But he was recaptured after a week in a spectacular gun battle. Because he said that he was so sad to return back to Murphy, yeah. having disappointed him. Mm-hmm. He was more he was more scared of disappointing him than yeah. going back to jail. Hmm. Yeah, because when he got back to jail, uh, Murphy was just as... He was extremely disappointed, and he had decided he was going to make an example of him. Uh, he reopened the bullpen and kept Carl hanging by handcuffs on the cell door. Uh, but Carl... You know, usually when they punished him, he'd scream, he'd yell, he'd destroy everything he could. But during his entire Mm. time, this punishment didn't say a word. I thought Spud Murphy was going to make him peel the big potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) That's the worst. That's the worst. pumpkins. (laughs) (laughs) But once Carl was finally placed back in general population, he sawed out of his cell, stole a trusty cook uniform, used a bar spreader to take out the last obstacle, and escaped Oregon State forever. So in the summer of 1920, Panzram showed up in New Haven, Connecticut to settle a score with his old nemesis, President William Howard Taft. Taft, about seven years out of office at this point. I hate it when a fat boy is allowed to grow up to be a fat president. (laughs) (laughs) The fattest of all. So Carl broke into the house of an ex-president and stole $40,000 in jewelry and bonds plus a 45 Colt Automatic. Carl used the money he made fence in the jewels to buy a yacht. Another the, yacht! The Aquista. Carl made his way to New York City in his yacht and docked off City Island in the Bronx. He would make his way all the way down to the bottom tip of Manhattan at 25 South Street and find sailors who seemed to have a bit of cash and promised him big pay and easy work Mm. up on his yacht. And when the sailor would inevitably say yes, Carl would have them bring all their possessions up to the Bronx. And this was a pretty smart move on Carl's part. Get all of your money. (laughs) What size shoes are you? Okay. Well, the genius part of that was that Carl was close enough for the trip but he was far enough away where the sailors couldn't leave anything behind. I mean, the tip of Manhattan all the way up to the oh. Bronx. I mean, that's a, what, 10 miles or maybe like three or four miles. I say by schooner, it's three miles. If yeah. you go how many, depends how many knots you're going. As the crow flies. It depends if the jib is, is wired or, or, or if the scoot is full. That's right. That's <laughs> correct. There, Carl would get them as drunk as he could, as soon as he could, what we call pulling a Dahmer. Ah, yes. Ah. And sometimes... He would sodomize him, but sometimes he'd just let him go to sleep. And while they were asleep, Carl would use the very gun he stole from President William Howard Taft to end the sailor's life with a single shot to the head. He would then tie a rock around their dead body, take it about a mile out into the sea in his rowboat, and drop the victim overboard. He only stopped when other people docked at City Island noticed how much loot he was accumulating. Him just dressed like a fancy queen with a big yeah. crown on, <laughs> just draped with jewels and, and many layers of sailor's clothes. Yes. The next two sailors he hired were kept alive 
And the three of them started traveling down the East Coast, robbing yachts together. But they only got as far as Atlantic City before they got caught in a squall and were run aground. Now, undeterred, Carl immediately went back to Connecticut to the same town where he had robbed President William Howard Taft, mm. looking for another score of the same size now, so he th- could buy another yacht. But on this burglary attempt... Carl Panzram was unsuccessful, and he was arrested for burglary and did six months in jail. Hmm. Once Carl was out on bail, he decided it was time to see the world, and he skipped out. He sailed to Europe and from there caught a ship to Africa. And this is where Carl would leave his humanity behind forever Mm. and commit some of his most despicable crimes, ensuring his name would always be shorthand for evil son of a bitch. Wow. In Angola, Carl worked as a slave driver for the Sinclair Oil Company. While there, he bought an 11-year-old girl from her parents for $8, making sure Mm. she was a virgin before he made the purchase. He said he took her back to his shack on the first night and back to the family shack on the second, as he said she was not, in fact, a virgin. The parents exchanged that girl for their younger daughter, an eight-year-old. Carl said he took her back to his shack and thought that maybe she was a virgin, but it didn't look like it to him. Now, personally, Mm. I think this whole thing was Carl in the most evil Mm. way possible because he was still a little gun-shy from the Denver gonorrhea incident. I think he was trying to prove that he wasn't gay. It seems like when he bought this girl, he proved the exact opposite. As he said, he took the eight-year-old girl back, quit looking for virgins, and started looking for a boy. Hmm. The boy he chose was a table waiter back at the Sinclair oil camp. Carl said, I educated him into the art of sodomy as practiced by civilized people. But he was only a savage and didn't appreciate the benefits of civilization. I'm not sure if any of that's true. A kid told his boss, who fired Carl for the offense, but didn't go quite as far as to actually have Carl arrested, and Carl beat his boss half to death for his troubles. Carl went to the U.S. consul's office to try to get back to the States, but Sinclair had called ahead, and the consul refused to help. They said, you're never going back to America, at least not on our dime. You got to stay here because you are a monster. God. Yeah. Now, while trying to figure out what to do next, Carl was sitting in a park next to the camp when a 12-year-old boy came along. Carl led him out to a gravel pit about a quarter mile from the camp, sodomized him, and bashed his head in with a rock. Carl said, His brains were coming out of his ears when I left him, and he will never be any deader. He is still there. And as an added bit of mayhem, Carl burned down one of the Sinclair oil rigs before he left camp, causing hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage, an incident which was well documented like many of Carl's crimes. So we know Hmm. that that actually happened. And that's the thing about many of Carl's crimes, and we'll we'll be talking about this a lot more uh, in uh, the next few minutes, is that people went back, they looked, they checked out his claims, and a lot of times... It checked out. Uh, From that oil camp, Carl bought a ticket down to the coast to Libido Bay and hired a canoe with a crew of six locals to ostensibly go hunting for crocodiles on the river. But when Mm. the crew had their backs turned to Carl, he shot them one by one, reloaded, and shot them again in each of their heads to make sure they were dead. He then threw the bodies overboard and let the crocodiles do the rest. Carl traveled from Africa to Portugal, where he tried to get passage back to America from the U.S.
best consul there, mm. but Carl's reputation was so horrible that word of him had traveled all the way to Portugal from Africa. And this was in the 20s. The only kind of news that traveled fast was bad news, and Carl was, without a doubt, bad news. And carrier pigeons. <laughs> so when the U.S. consul refused to give Carl passage, Carl stowed away in an English ship and eventually made his way back to New York in early summer 1922. By July, Carl had murdered another boy, this time in Salem, Massachusetts. He was a 12-year-old named Henry McMahon. So Carl beat that boy to death with a rock after sodomizing him. Carl said he left the boy there with his brains coming out of his ears. Mm. And while Panzram would never go on trial for this murder, when he confessed to it years later, cops in Salem said that the details Carl gave matched up with the facts they had on hand, and locals fingered Carl as the guy they had last seen the boy with. I don't think we should They should, should use... not be fingering Yeah, I was going <laughs> to... Why would we say fingered? After the murder... Carl, acting as a yegg, picked up a boy named George. Now, with George in tow, Carl shot and killed a man who had tried to steal a yacht that Carl had just stolen in Rhode Island using a gun that Carl had stolen from the New Haven Police Commissioner's yacht. Damn. Now, after the murder, George decided that he'd had just about enough of a life of crime, and Carl let him go back home. And when George got back, he told police all about Carl's activities, and they caught up with Carl in Nyack, New York, and arrested him for sodomy, burglary, and robbery. Hmm. But Carl actually beat this rap only because he made an agreement with a lawyer that the lawyer could have Carl's yacht as payment for services rendered. What is going on with the yacht? yacht? What is happening? You can get away with with all these crimes if you got a yacht? <laughs> but Carl, yeah, he beat the rap. He gave the yacht. He beat the rap. He got out of there. But when the lawyer went to register the boat, it came up as stolen. Oh, and the original owner came back from Providence and took it back. He got pants rammed indeed. <laughs> a few days after Carl's release in August of 1923, Carl went back to New Haven, Connecticut, and found another boy. But this one, he gagged with a handkerchief before strangling him with his own belt. And this one, Carl said he, quote, enjoyed most, and details of his confession again matched up with details the New Haven police had on record. But it wouldn't be the murders that Carl was arrested for. The night after the Belt murder, Carl was caught robbing an office in Larchmont, New York, and was sentenced to five years in prison after being free for half a decade, robbing, wow. raping, and killing as he pleased. Well, you know, I think it's good they arrested him. I'm <laughs> yeah. just going to throw that out there. <laughs> Carl was sent to Clinton Prison, a.k.a. Danamora, located in upstate New York. Danamora was often called the Siberia of America, essentially the precursor to Alcatraz. It was Alcatraz be- before there was Alcatraz. Mm. Now, what made Danamora special was that since it was so isolated, the town in which the prison was located was almost completely populated by people who either worked at or had worked at the prison. And this made mm. prison guard life a kind of tradition, which was passed down from father to son. It was an almost tribalistic life with its own value systems, all of which were centered around the punishment of the inmate. Mm. Carl began a predictable run of prison mayhem followed by an escape attempt. But unlike the others, this one would not only be unsuccessful, but would be disastrous Mm. for Panzram's health. When they said one of the most interesting things about Danamora is that it had 30-foot walls. Panzram somehow, without the guard seeing him, built an entire 
ladder made out of gardening equipment. This is how clever he was. So Carl tried scaling the wall using his homemade ladder, but of course it broke, and Carl fell 30 feet down to a concrete slab, breaking both his ankles, both his legs, fracturing his spine, and in his words, rupturing himself. Not good. He was caught trying to sodomize another prisoner in their hospital bed and was thrown back into a cell where he would stay for another three years waiting out his sentence. What a maniac. He wrote, My whole mind was bent on figuring out different ways to annoy and punish my enemies, and everybody was my enemy. Uh, In an extensive letter to Lesser, and this is talking about how much Panzram thought about murder. Panzram wrote about the plans for mass murder he concocted in Danamora while he was sitting there waiting for his bones to knit back together. Hmm. Plans he very well could have carried out had he not been so devastatingly injured from the fall. Now, remember this. This is eight months of solitary. They put him in alone. His legs do not work. He is, his spine is all fucked up. He's laying in a cot, staring at the ceiling, thinking of terrorist acts. Yeah. That's nuts. This man is very patient. A lot of time to think. Not a lot of options either. No. Now, the first plan started with a few robberies to gather up money for dynamite, formaldehyde, and a few hundred pounds of sulfur. Carl would then go to a railroad tunnel between Myersdale, Pennsylvania, and Cumberland, Maryland, a location he had already picked out. He had it in mind. Once there, he would lay a contact bomb on the tracks in the middle of the tunnel Mm. next to the large glass containers full of formaldehyde along with the hundreds of pounds of sulfur. And when the passenger train hit the bomb, the bomb would explode, trapping the train and filling the tunnel with deadly gas, killing everyone aboard the train within minutes. If there was only a cartoon duo that could stop him like Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> Maybe. This does seem like a very strange, it's like an old-timey uh, sort of uh, terrorism, I suppose, in a way. Uh, Carl would wait outside the tunnel and shoot anyone who would come out, and when he was sure everyone was dead, Carl would put on a gas mask and loot the corpses, going from train car to train car. And to ensure he'd have enough time, he'd also blow the bridge behind him that the train had just gone over. And Carl carried this out, the body count would have been in the hundreds. Mm. But with the loot Carl would gain from the robbery, he planned to invest all of it in the stock market and maximize profits by starting a war between England and the United States. Thank God. I thought you were going to say he was going to buy a yacht. (laughs) (laughs) This is how he planned to start a war between England and America. He had actually a very reasonable plan. Sure. First, he would wait until diplomatic relations were strained, which... They actually were between England and the United States in 1927. And Carl would wait until a British ship was anchored in the Hudson River in New York City. Then, dressed in a U.S. Navy uniform, Carl would affix a Navy flag to a couple of small boats, load them up with TNT, and anchor them next to the British ship. He would then light 15-minute fuses on all the TNT and conspicuously paddle away in a third boat, hoping that someone would see him in his U.S. Navy uniform. Carl's hope was that an Englishman would see either the boats or Carl in a Navy uniform and blame the United States starting a war. And if that didn't work, Carl would play it from the other side by buying a British ship and blowing up one of the locks in the Panama Canal. He had different angles for this. Double angles. And it was really close, because back in the day, I mean, when you were saying it's like there was an actual real tension happening between the UK and the United States. And it's like, 
He could have done it. Yeah. And that, technically, he would have been like weirdly the most important man in American history. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, less than two months after Carl was released from Danamora, he embarked on a reckless crime spree, committing 10 burglaries and a murder in Baltimore. But Carl wouldn't be taken down for the murder. This time, it was nothing more than the theft of a radio that would put Carl Panzram in prison for the rest of his life and a murder while inside that would take him to the hangman's noose. Ooh, but he did get to hear the Carter family, and they're a great, <laughs> wonderfully, wonderfully talented family. On August 10th, 1928, a fence named Joe Chavinsky rolled over on Panzram after being caught pawning a radio that Carl had stolen from the house of a well-known dentist in Washington, D.C. When Carl was arrested, he treated the charge like a joke, saying he'd killed too many people to worry about this charge. But it would be while Panzram was awaiting trial on the radio charge that he would meet a 25-year-old prison guard named Henry Lesser. Mm. Now, Lesser seemed like a pretty good dude. As far as prison guards in the 20s went, he kind of reminds me of, like, Tom Hanks in The Green Mile. Oh, okay. Yes. Now, Lesser was immediately curious about Panzram from the moment he saw him. You know, like we said, Panzram is a man with presence. So Lesser walked up to Panzram's cell and asked, What's your racket? To which Panzram replied, What I do is reform people, and the only way to reform them is to kill them. For some reason, Lesser decided he wanted to know more and struck up an unlikely friendship. But what finally won Panzram over was when Lesser, after Panzram had gone through a particularly brutal prison torture for trying to loosen his cell bars, Lesser gave Panzram a dollar. Oh, and gave him a dollar. Gave him a dollar. But I mean, this is 1928. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Here's a dollar. Well, this actually brought tears to Panzram's eyes. He was almost crying. And he told Henry Lesser that no screw had ever done him a favor before. Mm. And because of that, Panzram chose Henry Lesser to be the one to hear the full story of the life of Carl Panzram. It's time to tell his story, maybe. Huh? So whenever Lesser could, he would smuggle a pen and paper into Panzram's cell, and Panzram would fill each paper, carefully numbering each page before leaving them between his cell bars for Henry to find the next morning. And these pages are where we get the vast majority of our information about Panzram, or at least what gave writers and researchers a roadmap to find out more. Hmm. Now, while all this was going on between Lesser and Panzram, Panzram was starting to gain some attention. During one of his torture sessions, Carl had confessed to the murders of the three boys in Philadelphia, New Haven, and Salem. And like we said, the details were all checking out. So when Carl went on trial for the radio theft, a crowd was gathered and Panzram took the opportunity to say a few words for himself in open court. Now, the way these words are formulated, you're going to see that he understood the gravity of having everybody's attention. And he really he was trying to cement his place in history. Yeah. You people got me here charged with housebreaking and larceny. I am guilty. I broke in and I stole what I didn't steal. I smashed. If the owner had come in, I would have knocked his brains out. There's something else you ought to know. While you were trying me here, I was trying all of you, too. I found you guilty. Some of you I've executed. If I live, I'll execute some more of you. I hate the whole human race. You think I'm playing crazy, don't you? I'm not. I know right from wrong, 
No delusions. I don't hear anything you don't hear. My conscience doesn't bother me. I have no conscience. I believe the whole human race should be exterminated. I'll do my best to do it every chance I get. Now I've done my duty. You do yours. I am the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> you get the feeling his defense attorney is just like, yeah, stop, cut it out, cut it out. Oh, my hey, goodness. Hey, uh, just, oh, don't, oh, just don't. Oh, don't I, uh, I'm Carl. <laughs> and for that little speech, Carl Pandram was sentenced to 25 years at the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, the same prison he had served time in after the Army when he was a teenager. Hmm. For on January 30th, 1929, Lesser took Panzram on his transfer to Leavenworth. And once there, the two shook hands and promised to write. <laughs> And right, they did. Oh, it is su- this is such a weird story at this point. <laughs> Panzram's letters to Lesser are worlds apart from the biography Panzram had written while housed in the Washington, D.C. jail. He talked about the articles he enjoyed reading, his favorite philosophers, he loved Kant and Nietzsche, and mm. his opinion that Lesser should get out of the prison racket. Well, Panzram even gave Lesser business ideas, such as Panzram's admittedly good idea to invest in the dehydration of foodstuffs as a means of transportation. Oh, that's good. And then it could be lesser is more, which would be a good slogan because you have dehydrated food, which looks lesser, but in reality, it's it's more. And when lesser wouldn't write back soon enough for Panzram's liking, Carl would play the part almost that of a wounded lover. Oh. I received your last letter July 29th. This is my third letter since then. What's the matter? Don't you get all of my letters, or don't you care to answer them? If you don't want to write to me, just say so, and I'll not bother anymore. I saw what you did. You left me on red. I see the three dots. What are you trying to say? (laughs) But it wasn't all bananas and bitching for Carl Panzram at Leavenworth. On Carl's first day, when he was taken in for processing, he told the officer in charge, I'll kill the first man who bothers me. And six months later, Panzram would make good on the killing threat. Upon arrival at Leavenworth, Carl was assigned duty in the laundry room, which was overseen by a hard-ass KKK leader named Robert Warnke. Why would this guy bother Panzram? I mean, he knew it wasn't going to turn out, right? Well, Carl said in, he said in open court. He told Henry Lesser. He said it on the transfer there. He told the deputy chief. He told the guy who, who brought him in again and again and again and again. I'm going to kill the first man who bothers me. Don't bother him. So after a few months of being a good boy, Panzram started laundering a few extra handkerchiefs for some pocket change for the prison canteen. Oh. Now, Warnke soon caught Carl and busted him down to third grade status, which was just as bad in Leavenworth as it was the first time Carl was there. Third grade prisoners were sent to solitary confinement, were placed under strict silence rules, couldn't receive mail, couldn't use the commissary, and weren't even allowed to watch the monthly prison movie. Oh, that's so sad. And for busting him down, Panzram swore to kill Warnke, as Warnke had indeed bothered him. Now, usually, when a prisoner was busted to third grade, the prisoner would be reassigned from the person who busted him down to avoid the inevitable revenge. But because Panzram, and this is the amazing irony of it, because Panzram had specifically threatened to kill Warnke, Carl was sent right back to the laundry room because Mm. Warnke didn't want to lose face. Because if he lost face, then he would lose respect. And in a prison like Leavenworth, a hard-ass place like that, Mm. respect is 
the number one thing that you have. It's the only thing you have. You lose that and you're done. It's the currency, yeah. And when Panzram came back to the laundry room from the hold, the other prisoners said that Carl had calmed down, or at least appeared to, and eventually faded into the background. But in a letter to Henry Lesser, Carl wrote, I'm still on my same job and like it less each day. I'm getting all set for a change. It won't be long now. Seems scary. Yeah. So on June 20th, 1929, Carl was walking into the laundry room when he passed by a half-built washing machine that had an open packing crate next to it, which was filled with 10-pound iron bars. Just out Why are we shipping these to prison? (laughs) Why? Yeah, what would be the point of that? Just be like, use if you want to escape. (laughs) Carl picked one up and hid behind a steel support beam on the opposite side of the room and waited for Robert Warnke. And when Warnke entered the room, Warnke stopped in front of the same washing machine to take a look at the construction and possibly to wonder why there was a large crate with a bunch of 10-pound iron bars yeah, just This seems out. to be a mistake. This is <laughs> a mistake. Seems, and I know that I'm also a grand wizard of the KKK, and I'm, like, fine with that, but this is a big mistake. <laughs> that is a mistake. And when Warnke turned around, there stood Carl Panzram. And with the loud roar... Panzram brought the iron bar down on Warnke's head, sending him to the floor. Panzram bashed Warnke's head again and again until the foreman's head was an unrecognizable mush of brains and bone. Well, Take that, Dad. <laughs> Take that, Dad. Panzram then turned his rage towards the other men already at work, and he started swinging the bar at them, but as Carl wasn't as spry as he once was due to the fall, he missed again and again. And Panzram then limped out of the laundry and into the office of the deputy warden to take his revenge on that guy for denying Carl's work transfer. But lucky for the deputy warden, that guy was in another wing having a conversation with guard captain Fred Bulldorm Shirty Morrison. Panzram moved on to the adjoining clerk's room and started swinging the bar again, but he didn't hit anybody that time either. And he also chased a trustee to the dining room, but never managed to catch him due again to the limp. Carl then made his way down to the isolation block, opened the nearest cell, and sat down with a relaxed look on his face, satisfied with the mission at least partways accomplished. So on December 5th, Carl Panzram was indicted for first-degree murder, which sat just fine with them because Carl, at this point, he wanted to die. Finally, he's getting charged with murder. Is this the first time? This is the first time. Good Lord. And also, he needed to get a kill on the books. I think he knew in order to solidify his reputation as an all-American folktale, he needed to prove that he could murder. And I think that's why he did it in such a public way, to be like, I'm not full of shit. I will do this again, and you let me out of here, I'll kill everybody. But Carl, he actually had a surprisingly hard time making it to the hangman's noose, but not for lack of trying. Carl's plan was to act as his own attorney, plead not guilty to ensure the harshest punishment, and essentially demand death during his defense. But the feds refused Carl's request to act as his own attorney, and the lawyer they did assign him wanted to plead insanity. That was the only way he could find out of it. And Carl's smart-ass ways seemed to only confirm the whole insanity defense. Like when he wrote his last will and testament, he left his corpse to a dog catcher in East Grand Forks, Minnesota, and bequeathed to mankind an unspecified curse. Ooh. Awesome. But Carl's biggest obstacle was the fact that capital punishment was, at that time, illegal in Kansas, where Leavenworth was located. However, since the prison was on federal land, the murder was 
was a federal case, so the death penalty was on the table. USA, USA, <laughs> USA, USA, USA. But that didn't stop local death penalty opponents from coming to Carl's aid very much against his will. When Carl found out that advocates were trying to get his death sentence overturned, Carl wrote them an extensive point-by-point letter on why he should be allowed to die and why they should leave the whole business alone. This is him writing to his advocates concerning their attempts to save his life. Oh, dear, look, we got a, with that dear young Carl Panstram, he sent us a letter. <laughs> I bet he wants to say thank you so very much. Well, open it, Craig. Open the letter, Craig. All right, I'll open it, but I know he will be very thankful yes, for it. we're doing the Lord's work, Greg. The only thanks you or your kind will ever get from me for your efforts on my behalf is that I wish you all had one neck and that I had my hands on it. I would sure put you out of your misery just the same as I have done with numbers of other people. I have no desire whatever to reform myself. My desire is to reform people who try to reform me, and I believe that the only way to reform people is to kill them. That's my trademark. I'm trademarking. (laughs) My motto is rob them all, rape them all, and kill them all. I am very truly yours, Copper John II, Carl Pensram. I tell you what, Clark, I'm kind of wet. <laughs> and I don't know why. I think it's the choking. Yeah. <laughs> and so Carl Panzram finally got his wish and was sentenced to death by hanging. But in a strange move, considering how much effort he put into being hanged, Panzram attempted suicide two weeks before his execution date. Hmm. What a great last way to say fuck you to everybody yeah. yeah like honestly it would have been like he basically begged and begged and begged and finally like i did it before you could do it mm-hmm. yeah first he ate a rotten plate of beans that he had hidden in his cell for weeks that's kind of fun yeah and <laughs> i think I, I think i did that in college <laughs> yeah then he used a sharpened button to sever a particularly vulnerable leg artery but he was found had his stomach pumped and was patched up but whatever the reason carl wouldn't try again the night before his execution, Panzram's blockmate, Robert Stroud, the infamous Birdman of Alcatraz, said that the night before uh, his execution, uh, Carl spent the whole night singing a song. Ooh. And the song was of Carl's own composition. And in Stroud's <laughs> words, its principal theme was, Oh, how I love my round eye. I would never give him back. Oh, how I love my round eye. Try to take him back. <laughs> Try to take him back. Try to take him back. Wow. Kind of a system of a down flare. <laughs> the next day, Carl was taken to the gallows, so eager to die that he was half dragging his escorts behind him. And when asked if he had any last words, Carl said, Yes, hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could hang a dozen men while you're fooling around. And so on December 5th, 1930, the spirit of hatred and vengeance was hanged from the neck until dead. And it would be another 40 years before the world would know the full story of Carl Panzram. There it is, Carl Panzram, all three parts. Marcus, how do you feel? Icky. Icky.